tinfoil hat. Oh, what the fuck are you guys even talking about? Global controls will have to be imposed. And a world-governing body will be created to enforce them. Welcome to tinfoil hat. We, we, we go deep, homeboy. Aaron, open your mind. Drink from the fountain of knowledge. There's lizard people everywhere. That's some interdimensional shit. Wake up, Aaron. This is only the beginning. Dude, you just blew my mind. Good morning, Swarm, and welcome to Tim Fall Hat. You know I am. You know what I'm here to do. I'm here to rock. Thank you guys for joining us. Joining me as always, Xavier Guerrero What's and up? Jay Nice, Johnny Woodard. Hey, dude. Crazy days. Uh, crazy day. Well, you know, in uh, in the middle of recording this episode, uh, we all just found out that former guest. Uh, John McAvee has died in prison. Uh, I wasn't going to stop the, the the episode to talk about, so I thought we'd talk about it a little here real quickly. Uh, a tweet he put out, let me show you guys. This was put out uh, by the podcast Fringe Center, Manny Mirandez. Uh, just go to at Fringe Center on Twitter, and it's from John, McCa- John McAfee. And it says, uh, it's on his Twitter, and this is dated October 15th, 2020. I'm content in here. I have friends. The food is good. All is well. Know that if I hang myself a la Epstein, it will not, it will be no fault of mine. Interesting. Wait, wait, dude, dude, dude. dude. It goes even, look at this tweet. Okay, so it says, uh... This is a McAfee tweet. Getting subtle messages from U.S. officials saying, in effect, we're coming for you, McAfee. We're going to kill yourself. I got a tattoo today just in case. If I suicide myself, I didn't. I was whacked. And look at his tattoo. It's a dollar sign with the word whacked next to it. And he got that in prison? That's probably one of the better prison tats I've ever seen. Well, it's 2019. No, I don't think he was in prison. Okay. Uh, Yeah, when's that come out? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Dude. I mean, they got him. Yeah. I mean, what was his info that he had? He he talked a lot about the elites, a lot about adrenochrome, a lot about child sex trafficking. Bill Gates. A lot of Bill Gates. A lot of Bill Gates. Well, yeah, this was a guy who was at the very top of cybersecurity, you know, for decades. So he's I'm privy to a lot of I mean, shit that I'm sure they don't want coming out at trial if he because he just got extradited. I mean, you don't think he got invited? And he to was getting extradited. Well, he for was what? getting Murder, extradited, right? Yeah. yeah. You don't think he ever got invited to Epstein's Island? I think he said he didn't. He say he went there. I don't know. If I don't. He want... went or did it? I know he got invited. You're not not inviting John McAfee. Yeah, I mean, he parties hard. We've all heard this. I stories. feel bad for his girlfriend. Yeah, for sure. Should we hit her up? No, I mean she's probably going through some shit right now. You of want to course. hit her up for a hooker? I mean, like, what do you want to hit her up for? I mean, like, she's just going through, sh- she's going through some stuff, man. Just like totally crazy. It's just like by hanging too, you know. It's just like it's all by hanging. Don't I mean, gotta, it doesn't you don't you have to like fall? But a also amount, here, shit like dude, that? it's like. Like, prison's bad, right? It's bad, especially if you're a billionaire, but you've been on the run. You lost a lot of your money. But 75, is prison that bad? Well, he was saying, I mean, his tweets were all like, yeah, I'm just meeting some people. I mean, he talked about like some a little violence and stuff. But I mean, he's got a fucking phone, obviously. 
He's on Twitter. Well, I think you're allowed to go on the internet in prison. I know this is Spanish prison. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It might be different. So, I mean... Food's probably better. It's like, you know, <laughs> I mean, he was on the run for a very long time. And they got him. And, like, I'm just dying to know what they think he... What he had. What they had. I mean... It's just super interesting. Like, I think they would have already done it to Ghislaine if we weren't, we didn't everyone had their eyes on it. Well, I mean, well, it's like, is she even in prison? Yeah, or that too. I mean, she is. I mean, it's so crazy, dude. Yeah. Crazy we had him on, though. I'll give him that. When you told me we were going to have him, I was like, wait up. Really? Really? Yeah, you remember it was supposed to be 45, he's like 30, and then he's like, I'd like to come on again, please. (laughs) So, uh, rest in peace, John. The the story is going to uh, unfold. Uh, Sadly, I don't think we'll get the whole true story. No. And uh, just super sad, super tragic, you know? And, I mean, did he murder somebody? Is that like a story we're told? I mean, yeah, he has crazy stories on that island. He basically was the king of the island for a little bit, or wherever he was at. He had a lot of money and told people. And then he lost a lot of cash from basically what? Just well, I think he was trying to launch a crypto too, like a a cryptocurrency, and I don't, I don't think it went well. I mean, what if he owned a ton of cum rocket and it just (laughs) crashed? Yeah, yeah. What if, what if this is Bitcoin dip? Is yeah. that's what got him? <laughs> that's sad. Well, he was anti Bitcoin. Yeah. Well, you know the crypto dip though. Every everything is in right now. Yeah, that sucks, man. Uh rest in peace. Yeah. McAfee. Yes, one of my favorites. McAfee on the show. Yep, yeah. one of the best. It was a lot of fun. The guy liked to get pooped on, and that's fine. It was. Yeah, but he would. <laughs> you could say what you want about him, but he was totally open the way he lived his life, and you have to respect that, man. Somebody I think was, when you get that rich, what do you care? You know exactly, yeah, yeah. You're like, yeah, I like to get pooped on. I'm rich. Hey, and he paid these ladies very well. Yeah, that's like, my whole thing. Well. It's like let him, let him get pooped on. Of course, now Epstein is, Epstein is trending now. I mean, I'm pretty sure it's gonna be John McAfee. Oh, here we go. Himself. John McAfee allegedly killed himself in jail. Exactly 22 months, two weeks after Epstein's death on the 22nd. 20, 222nd day of the year, having explicitly stated that if he ends up suicide, it means he was whacked. Two, 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 two. You know? Ah, oh, wow. You know, I mean, she's Dude, Jerry, uh, Gary Sheffield has, uh, has, um, he's chiming in on the Yeah, he chimed oh, wow. in with a tweet that says Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself, just like John McAvee. Hell of so, a hitter. Hell of a hitter. Yeah. Hell of a hitter. Hell of a hitter. <laughs> so uh we live in an interesting time. The story will continue to open. Guys, if you want to support the show, uh a couple things are going on. I want everybody to understand something. YouTube is we still have shows on YouTube. Uh, Broken Sim, Cash Daddies, they're all on YouTube. Go check it out. Go support the show. New Broken Sim just got 
put on there today? Good broken sim. Uh, and I heard yeah. some good news with Cash Tatties. You guys got a great guest coming on. Oh, yeah. Well, that, they announced it before it was actually uh, confirmed. <laughs> okay. And now he's not answering my phone. Uh-oh. <laughs> These Uh-oh. guys, I like, I, I just, I'm, I love them That's to death. So funny. They're fucking <laughs> amateurs. So Joey Diaz, it, they just blasted everywhere that he's going to be on oh. the show. And Sam is now saying that it's not confirmed. <laughs> no, he said, hey, I'll do it. Let's talk. And then these fuck nuts ran with it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, dude, they had like promotional art and everything. They don't right? know Hollywood. They don't understand. No, it's just know. like I love them all. They're, dude, it's the f- if you want to see a great show, watch Cash Daddies, Broken Sims. Now I kind of hope he doesn't come out there. <laughs> Fuck <laughs> you, Johnny. That would be so Johnny, you're gross. <laughs> that would be so, so funny. gross. You're just uh, a gross person, dude. You uh, can't. You, that would be. You're funny. gross. That's the funniest guys, thing that could happen. Guys, you can see all of my free shows. Any free video you want to see that I put out is all available at samtriply.com. You can actually see uh, most of them on YouTube as well, except for Tim Full Hat. Now, I'm doing a new series called Tripping with Tripoli, where I go on the road and uh, I shoot what the experience is. And if I can find uh, something alternative, whether it's a conspiracy or crypto or something like that, I'll shoot it and you can check it out. We just dropped probably the best one so far, which is uh, Houston, which was a lot of fun. Uh, Xavier and I went uh, to NASA and it was a ton of fun. A lot of laughing. A lot of laughing. A lot of laughing. So go check that out. Uh, if you want to if you want to support the show, there's a couple ways you can do it. We talk about it all the time. All the time, Rockfin, R O K F I N dot com. Okay, all all my premium contents there. Everybody does a show on the show has premium content there. You have Xavier Guerrero's show. We don't smoke the same. same. We have Broken Sim on there. The Grace of All Time Sports Talk, Mm -hmm. and then we have Tim Fall Hat Premiums on there. My my spiritual podcast Zeros on there. Conspiracy Social Club is on there. So that is like five or six shows, all for ten dollars. I mean, you just it 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 blows from a from a from a a uh, consumer point of view. Uh, Rockfin blows Patreon out of the water. So go support. And you get Whitney Webb there, Isaac Wysip, Jay Dyer. Jimmy Dore. Uh, Come Jimmy Dore, Abby Martin. Uh, the list, all, everybody from the Union of the Unwanted is on there. So And the Union of the Unwanted is doing some exclusive stuff on there. So go check out all my shows, man. Cash Daddies. Punch Drunk, Union of the Unwanted, Zero, uh, what else is there? That's about it, man. And then Tim Full Hat, obviously. Support the show. Leave a great comment. Lately on uh, lately on Apple Podcasts, you guys have been really nice. Unbelievable. You guys have been leaving very nice comments because some of you motherfuckers, like, and I know who you are, like to go on there and just say some nasty shit for no other reasons, and then you're bored with your life. Okay? Just leave us a, a nice five star, say some nice shit about us, and uh, it'll make us feel good about ourselves. Uh, so they might get reposted. Oh, what's that? They yeah. might get reposted. If you leave something nice, we actually go in there and post it on the social media. And- We're, okay, now we got a couple ones. And then it's like, dude, oh, there's man. so many. Look at this. So many. So many five stars. We went on a nice run of five star after five star, okay? Uh, but I don't care, dude. You know, you want to leave some negative things? Do it. This show just keeps rocking. So uh, support the show. 
All everything's at samtriplee.com. I'm about to start a uh, pr- subscription-based uh, 24-hour radio station of all of my audio. You can go get all the show's audio on a loop, 24 hours, different channels. You're going to enjoy it. Uh, everything I do there to listen to. I love you all very much. Uh, I can't thank you guys enough for supporting the show. And I just want to say this real quick. When I do live shows, you come see me. If I could, I would sit with each one of you for an hour. I would do that. Because I had a time when I had four fans. And I would literally talk their ear off that they would fucking run away. Uh, I would love to do that. Sometimes the line is out the door. We got a second show coming. And I always feel bad to cut it off. Just know I love and care care for each one of you. Very much. And, you know... Whatever happens with the show, we're going to do it. I'm going to diamond hands this into the ground and uh, never stop doing it until you guys stop listening. And uh, we got a great one. We got uh, um, we got Graham Dunlop from Grimerica and Randall Carlson on the show. And it is a banger. It is a banger. So enjoy the show. I love you very much. All right, guys, let's get into it. Super excited to have both our returning champions back. Both the guests have been on before, and they are crowd and listener swarm favorites. They've created something really cool called the Contact at the Canyon, where they explore remote areas areas of the Western USA. So I'm very excited about that. He's on one of uh, one of the best podcasts out there. They are the king of the North. You can catch him on the Union of the Unwanted all the time. And uh, they're part of the America podcast. Please welcome Graham Dunlop. How are you, Graham? Hey, guys. Good. Thanks for uh, having me. You've been on, you've been almost on all my podcasts. You've been on Zero, you've been on Union One, and you're back again here at the uh, uh, Tim Fall Hat. So thank you very much. And excited to have our next guest on. It's been a while since we rock and rolled, and uh, it's been too long. And I'm very excited to have him on. He is one of the best in the business, and he's here to talk about one of my favorite subjects, which is ancient civilization, ancient knowledge. Please welcome the incredible Randall Carlson. How are you, Randall? I'm doing well. Doing well. I'm uh, overworked, underpaid, (laughs) lacking in sleep, but other than that, I'm doing well. I'm the same way. I'm so much like that. I've been listening to blues music. That's my whole thing. I turn on the blues and I just listen to grown men cry about how hard their lives are. And, and I totally relate to all of it. Like my dog hates me. Um, so for those who may not be familiar with you, uh, Randall, can you tell our, they might not remember you from your last appearance and uh, many appearances on very big podcasts. Uh, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Okay. Uh, Well, my day job is I own a design build company. So we do a variety of different kinds of projects. Um, We just finished building a restaurant here in Decatur, Georgia, just outside of Atlanta, which, you know, came online uh, right in the middle of the pandemic. So it was touch and go for a little while, but it's booming at this point. So I'm happy about that. Not losing any sleep over that. In fact, the, the main problem now is when I go to uh, have my gratis meals there, I can't find a parking spot. So that's a good sign. Um, 
so we do a lot of different kinds of high end and middle end and low end, just depending. Uh, we got an awesome team of craftsmen and subcontractors, and we do a lot of really interesting projects. So that's the day job. Then as soon as I get off of that, I'm on to my research that I've been engaged in for about 40 years now, um, actually a little more than that. And um, I'm just very interested in how the world works, uh, alternate views of ancient history, um, you know, alternate, just anything that's outside the mainstream appeals to me. But I'm particularly interested in the geological history of this planet and how it may have affected uh, the emergence of uh the human species, how it may have affected the rise and fall of civilizations and that sort of thing. Um, so this trip we did in May out in eastern Washington was to look at the geomorphic effects of the greatest floods ever documented in the history of planet Earth. And uh, in, in five days, we were only able to see a small fraction of the whole complex, which reaches from the Pacific Ocean into well into Montana, from there up into British Columbia and Alberta. Um, and so one of the things that I find so appealing about that is I don't think anybody's really figured it out yet as to what actually could cause floods on this scale. And later in the show, we can pull up some slides um, that will kind of convey to the uh, audience what the scale of this thing is that we're talking about. I will just mention, though, that uh, some of the peak discharges during this flood were measured in the hundreds of millions of cubic feet per second. Now, <clears throat> to put try to wrap your head around what that actually means, uh, I'm always looking for ways to convey to people the scale of, and magnitude of this phenomenon. But in this case, think of it this way. About 300 million cubic feet per second is one of the mid-range flows. This flow of 300 million cubic feet feet per second is roughly going to be between 10 and 20 times the combined flow of every single river on earth every single river uh north america south america africa europe asia every single river flowing all together at once and i'll give you another analogy typically the mississippi river at peak discharges maybe 100 to 150 thousand cubic feet per second the large two largest known floods on the mississippi river one in 1923 and one another one in 1993 topped out at just over 1 million cubic feet per second so the largest flood disaster most expensive and costliest flood disaster in American history was the 1993 flood disaster of, of the Mississippi. And uh, like I said, think of it that, think of that, I kind of use that as a standard, uh, a yardstick, if you will, a million cubic feet per second. So in some of the peak flows of these flood landscapes that we were looking at out in eastern Washington, the flows reached 700 to 800 million cubic feet per second. So try to imagine if you can, uh, you know, seven or eight, uh, 100 Mississippi rivers at peak discharge, peak largest measured flood discharge. So the, the, the point here is that these are phenomenal events. Most people are completely oblivious to the, to the fact that events like this have occurred across the face of this planet. And, uh, and then the, I think even some of the, 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 the geologists and other scientists that are looking at various aspects of this phenomena 
are not fully appreciating really the implications of it. And like I said, I think that there's a there's sort of a consensus viewpoint as to what caused these floods. We can talk about that in, the, in terms of the specifics. But once you begin looking at it, the I think the consensus viewpoint begins to make less and less sense. Um, and we have to be looking at a much larger framework, of a, a much larger conceptual framework to understand that there have been events like this in the history of this planet. They've been more numerous than anybody had recognized even a few decades ago. And these are things that have to be factored into our long-range thinking if we're going to have any hope of surviving as a civilization. And I, for one, would like to think that we have a, an unlimited future ahead of us if we, if we do it right. But if we ignore some of the natural factors that have played out over this planet, uh, over the millennia, over from, from any scale, time scale you care to look at, well, if we ignore those factors, uh, we're going to find ourselves in a world of hurt, I think. Uh, I couldn't agree more. I, I, we, those who uh, forget history are doomed to repeat it, and that's a very cliche saying. But I, I, I couldn't agree more. We see it happening just in the in a couple decades of politics. Mm -hmm. We see absolutely it happening where people are just repeating the same mistakes and not remembering. And you know, it's very interesting that you brought up the you know conventional thought. And how, like, the more information we get, the more ridiculous conventional thought is. And how, like, there is this desire to protect the conventional thought out of, like, almost ego to admit that everybody either got it wrong or their bullshit meter didn't catch that they were being either, they were either wrong on their assumption or they were getting lied to and they didn't catch it. And that's mm -hmm. a like a giant ego thing is being done. And, you know, I mean, I, I know you guys might not be, or Randall, you might not consider yourself a conspiracy theorist, and that's fine. But, you know, I know I am. I, I, I wear that with pride because uh, I just tired of them making terms to demonize us and then everybody running from it. it's like no just own it has no power but the point is like when you when you study history and that's why i think conspiracy theorists are they just study they study uh and they just keep score right and then when something comes up again they're like oh this is this just happened over here take a look at this like a great example is 9 11 and then this desire that they had to try to do that again with iran all oh, they attacked our drones we're like okay we fell for that once not gonna happen again but back to what you're talking about is like this conventional thought that is out there that everyone's just agreeing on you're like no the information says it's actually that's really far from the truth yet people are so anchored in to the the traditional science and like that's to me anti-science right because science is always meant to keep checking on itself and like if new information comes it's supposed to be applied to the thought and if it changes the the results then we have to all go yeah that's not we don't we don't agree with that thought anymore the new information's come out yet people love to just sit there traditionalist and anchored into a view that does not exist anymore or was never real but for some reason we all bought into it so i completely understand what you're saying because what what you're talking about it blows all timetables out and it makes mm. us where uh, it makes what i believe is this area and what we live in way more special than anybody even understands. Hey guys, uh, li are you like me? 
Are you are you looking for a fun business podcast? But all you keep finding are dry, boring hosts, right? If you like me, you appreciate your news with a side of comedy. And when I was looking for a business podcast that was actually funny, I couldn't find a solution until I listened to Dave and Brad the host of IP frequently and found exactly what I was looking for. Solid business advice, 80s music, headline news. These guys get it. They are the Miami Vice of podcasting. Okay? Good looking, successful, solving crimes with cool ass music. Okay? IP frequently. Imagine two guys. Let's call them Dave and Brad. And they blend business advice, 80s music, headline news, all into one podcast called IP Frequently. IP Frequently is, isn't just a sign of chronic condition. It is a real podcast hosted by our friends Dave and Brad that blends business advice, 80s music, and headline news all together. So please do this. So check them out. Subscribe to IP Frequently and stay up to date on their weekly streams and episodes wherever you get podcast that's right i pee frequently like rogan used to say in grandma's terms like the time frame it's 120 grandmas right like around <laughs> twelve thousand years or so <laughs> this was like there was a mile or two of ice ab above us in canada here and north uh, northern united states so we're not talking very long ago that that things were completely different Completely different, yes. And and as far as conspiracies, I mean, how, I don't think anyone can really study history without realizing that history is essentially a history of conspiracies. Those who covet power conspire. Those who have power conspire to keep that power. Um, that's the nature of it. The, where we have to be careful, though, is I think that there's a lot of psyop out there. In other words, yes. putting out really ridiculous sounding conspiracies in order to discredit the credible conspiracies by you know guilt by association. So that's kind of my uh, my concern. Is I you know I certainly do. Uh, I, yeah, look. I, I tend to be conspiratorial by nature because I understand how politics works. I understand that they're constantly having to. Um, modify history to suit the, the the narrative that they're trying to put out there and that's i think what's at the whole basis of all this cancel culture stuff that's going on right now um is that you know we see that whenever you've had authoritarian or totalitarian regimes that's what they first do is to rewrite history to make it sound like they are the inevitable outcome of history rather than the fact that they're manipulating history to further their own agendas but you know, the way the world is now, it's not going to work anymore, I don't think, because there's too many disparate flows of information out there. The only thing that's lacking, though, is the will on the part of a lot of people to really want to know what's going down in the world. They don't want to know, really. They would prefer to keep, you know, keep that veil up there. Let me just focus on my little world and not not recognize that whether we like it or not, we're part of a much bigger system. And one of the things that I like to say, Sam, is that I, I try to point out now that if you're following the science of the last, you know, typically in the last half century, but especially accelerating in the last couple of decades, is we have to realize that this planet we're on, if we want to start talking about ecology, we have to think in terms of a cosmic ecosystem. Because this planet we live on is part of a cosmic ecosystem. And what goes on in the cosmos has direct effects uh, 
on what goes on here below where we live uh, and play and build our civilizations. And if you look at the history of civilization, I mean, how many civilizations uh, have left their pitiful ruins around the planet that we can now study the, the, <laughs> yeah. the wreck and rubble of these ancient civilizations that rose up and, and collapse for one reason or another. And usually that collapses because they were not adaptable to the changing world, the changing planet that we live on. I, I totally agree with that. I also think that there, you know, when people talk about Greece or they talk about, you know, Rome, they always blame it on like everything got loosey goosey, like morals got loosey goosey, and they were you nobody paid attention and blah blah blah. And I I, I think that is just a, a, another psyop. I, if you were asking me, it's like greed got too greedy, in my humble opinion. Empire spread themselves too far. Power got consolidated. Money got consolidated. Wealth got consolidated. And, and the, the base didn't get taken care of. And then it collapses on itself. And, and that, to me, is what what I, I unfortunately see happening with the West, is this consolidation of power. But that's a different podcast. What I love to do is, is talk about, like, I mean, we, we hold these phones and they're like, this is the greatest technological advancement in humanity. And you're like, tell me how the pyramids were built. <laughs> tell me how that happened. It did. It was much more important than an iPhone. And that story is what everyone needs to understand. And you're, you're really right. There are so many different uh, uh, just uh, 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 flows of information. And there are people who just choose not to listen to it. Like, I don't know how many podcasts there are out there that just go over the latest episode of the, uh, you know, the, the Real Housewives of New Jersey. You're like, all the things going on in the world, and you want to do a podcast about a bunch of chicks who married a guy who did something, right? You know, and it's like, <laughs> like it's so mind-blowing to me. that. And, but it's like, it's the, it's the path of least resistance. Anything in life that is worth anything, you have to go through it to get to it. And people just don't want, to do that it's so easy to just fall under a brainwashing and just accept the information's given to you because the way the system's been been set up we're, we're getting spread out more and more we're working more jobs for less money and it's so hard to just be able to focus on a million things so we can just go home turn on the, the news and because we're nice people we think the people talking to us have honor right they're honorable people and they're just giving us the news without their spin on it and that has been exposed as not true and you're mm -hmm. right we're entering a time of great knowledge and you know I, I study the occult and all that stuff, and I think there's been things done to traumatize us, to, to stop this kind of great awakening that is coming of great knowledge and great love and great acceptance of others that, that many people are trying to stop from happening. And I hope that this leads to us understanding how many great civilizations there were. And maybe people like you, Randall, can help us understand why they fell and, and how can we stop that so that we can thrive and grow and just that I believe this planet has uh, unlimited resources 
for us to thrive and that this notion that everything's coming to a drying up and we're all effed mm-hmm. is to me just used to steal our loosh and, and mm-hmm. just constantly get us in in fear mode and that's kind of where i am on that man so i'm very excited about this because like i said ancient knowledge is you know is is what changed my perspective that there was much more going on mm-hmm. And when everybody says everything's a conspiracy, is everything's not a conspiracy? I go, I, you're completely wrong on that. It, it, I would say almost everything important is global globing, climate change, everything keep changing the name. Yeah, 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 <laughs> right. So, Randall, where do you want to start with all this? Okay, well, first of all, let me let me understand something here. Are you implying then that I should? Probably quit watching the Housewives of New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> no, we hey dude, we all have guilty pleasures. I just don't know if no. you should do a podcast on it. That's all. <laughs> Actually, I don't even know if that's a real show. I guess it is, right? <laughs> yeah. Hey, everybody, I want to tell you about our friends at Lucy Nicotine, okay? Lucy Nicotine is a company founded by Caltech scientists and former smokers looking for a better and cleaner nicotine alternative, okay? Finally, tobacco has an alternative that doesn't suck, all right? Research and developed for three years to be made for people, not patients. Lucy has created nicotine gum with four milligrams of nicotine and comes in these three flavors, wintergreen, cinnamon, and pomegranate. Holla at your boy, okay? Lucy has lozenges, okay, with four milligrams of nicotine that include the following flavors, cherry, ice, citrus, and mint. They went hard in the paint on that, okay? And it's convenient and discreet. Products can be enjoyed anywhere, on a flight, at work, at the gym, on the go. It doesn't matter, okay? So it's 2021. Get rid of your cigarettes, unplug your vape, throw out your dip, okay? And get some Lucy nicotine gum or lozenges, okay? This is the real deal. A subscription to Lucy comes directly to your door each month it's so simple and you don't have to leave your house because lucy has delivery down okay lucy lucy lozenges and gum okay also have fsa and hsa eligible so you'll be able to spend pre-tax dollars on them okay this is for the tfh swarm okay go to lucy.co co okay l-u-c-y dot co and use the promo code Tin foil to get 20% off all products on your first order, including gum or lozenges. Okay, this is Lucy.co. Use the promo code tinfoil at checkout. Okay, I also have to give this disclaimer warning these products contain nicotine derived from tobacco. Nicotine is addictive chemical. Okay, Lucy.co and be sure to use the promo code tinfoil. We can actually look in our immediate past and we find some some really salient examples. Um, you know, one of the things that I've been really interested in for years is the Middle Ages and these phenomena of the building of the great Gothic cathedrals. I don't know, Sam, if you've been to Europe or not and had a chance to ever see some of these incredible architectural masterpieces. I have Chart, Amiens, Reims, Leon, some of those. If you haven't, Put it on your bucket list. You got to do it, but but make sure you talk to me before you go, okay? Um, but, you know, if you look back at the history of Western civilization, you know, the last, one of the last great, uh, you know, historical periods was uh, of uh, cultural evolution was during the Roman period. Uh, and, you know, they built an incredible civilization. They were... Um, 
you know, amazing engineers. They they had a whole system of law, ethics, philosophy, and then of course it degenerated um, in a pattern that's becoming all too familiar. But what's interesting is that when you look at the rise and fall of the Roman civilization, you see it's tied right in with the natural changes of the planet. So the Roman civilization arose during a, a very warm period that, that uh, a lot of the proxy evidence would suggest is warmer, was warmer than it actually is now. It declined when that warm period ended. And what transitioned, the transition uh, the natural climatic transition, environmental transition that accompanied the decline of the Roman Empire was the shift into the so-called Dark Ages, which we now know was literally sometimes actually dark, uh, probably as a result of a succession of huge volcanic eruptions, uh, much greater even than the one that's behind me here on the, 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 the backdrop, which is Mount St. Helens, um, which, you know, erupted in, in 1980. Uh, with the force of a 24 megaton hydrogen bomb, which is almost inconceivable. But if you have a succession of volcanic eruptions, it will throw particulate matter into the atmosphere. That particulate matter then increases the, the atmospheric density, the opacity of the atmosphere, and begins reflecting heat back out into space. On the other hand, we also know now as a result of like 20 to going on 30 years of satellite observations of the sun that the solar constant is a myth. And the solar constant was one of the, the fundamental uh, cornerstones of the whole global warming scenario was because we can exclude the sun because it's constant and because it's never changing, then it has no role to play in, in global climate. Well, that's a myth. And we know that now from observations uh, that have accrued over the last 20 years with SOHO and some of the other um, satellite observing systems that have been in place. Okay, so there are multiple factors here. There are changes in the Earth's geomagnetic field that, he, that affect the climate. There are natural changes in ocean circulation that affect the climate. There are long-term uh, shifts in the tectonic plates, the outgassing of carbon dioxide directly from the crust, the outgassing of methane, the uptake of, of carbon dioxide by oceans. If the, if the sun's uh, activity declines, uh, over a period of, of several decades, as it has done in the past, the, the, the spore hour minimum, the maunder minimum, the wolf minimum, all of these are, have been times where the sun's activity has declined. And guess what, Sam? They also happen to be associated with periods of, of cold on, the, on, on planet Earth, right? If, if the sun goes into a state of, <clears throat> excuse me, inactivity, the Earth cools down, the oceans cool down. The solubility of carbon dioxide is dependent upon the temperature of the fluid. So if the, if the, if the uh, oceans cool down, what they begin doing is they begin drawing down, they begin sucking out the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. If the oceans warm up, they outgas. Now, if we go back and we look at this succession, and I'm going to go 2,000 years. We're going to block out 2,000 years, which to an astrologer would they say, this is the age of Pisces, you know, because for the last 2,000 years, the vernal equinox has been transiting through the constellation of Pisces, the fish. And so at the beginning of the age of Pisces, we find a lot of fish symbolism and so on. There's, you know, fish symbolism at the basis of Christianity. We find it, you know, in, in the, uh, in Hinduism in the form of Vishnu coming as a, as a fish, we find that fish symbolism embedded, which leads us into another very interesting realm, which is this idea of astro mythology that, um, 
that our friend um, David Matheson, David Matheson talks about, um, which we won't have time to get into right now. But taking this 2000 year block, we have a warm period at the beginning associated with the rise of the Roman civilization. The warm period ends, the dark ages begin. There's also evidence that there might have been as many as at least two cosmic impacts on the Earth during the uh, period between about 500 and 600 A.D. Now, there's a decade that began roughly around 536 A.D. and lasted for about, like I said, about a decade. That's probably the coldest decade of the last 2,000 years, right? This was the onset of the Dark Ages. The, 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 what then happened was the Roman, it was the final uh, death knell for the Roman civilization. The cold weather accompanied by damp caused collapses of agriculture. Crops rotted in the fields. Oh, they got frozen out. So you had around between 536 and 540 AD, you had multiple years of crop failures. So what happens when you have crop failures? There's not enough food to eat. When people don't have enough food, then they get malnourished, their immune systems get weak. You now have infectious opportunistic diseases that can come in and take and exploit the the uh, reduced immunity. And so this is exactly what we see happen. In 544 AD was the onset of what's called the Justinian Plague, and it wiped out at least a third the population of Europe. <clears throat> The cold and the damp lasted for about 300 years, and then it gave way to a period of increased warmth called the medieval warm period, which began around 900 A.D. Didn't didn't start everywhere at the same time or with the same intensity, but basically it came on between 900 and 1,000 A.D. Now, as a result of that, this sea ice that had expanded enormously from the polar regions down into, for example, the North Atlantic, it receded back. Well, what this then allowed was the the Vikings, for example, to sail those routes from Scandinavia to Iceland, from Iceland to Greenland. And it was during this medieval warm period that they were able to establish colonies and communities on the west coast of Greenland and farm for the next 300 to 400 years where it is now permafrost. Okay. well, now in Europe, you have the agricultural belt shifts 500 miles north. The, uh, the the viable band of growing uh, in terms of elevation shifts six to seven hundred feet up up elevation. Right, what this does is expands the the area of of tillable land, viable agricultural land. It also increases the growing season by about a month or more, depending on where you are. There was a flourishing wine industry that developed in England um, that was not possible before or since. Uh, so. What you had was you had abundant food. Now people are getting a lot to eat, right? So yeah. if you look at what happens between 900 and 1100 AD, you see European population growing. You see lifespans increasing, infant mortality decreasing. Uh, you actually see an increase in human stature because of the fact that it was a time of abundance and prosperity. By 1130 AD, there was enough surplus that European society was able to organize itself around this phenomena of the great cathedral building. Now, when you consider that there were eight great monuments and at least 500 lesser abbeys built during the next 150 years, you realize that there had to have been 
literally tens of thousands of highly trained craftspeople working on this. I'm talking about you know not just the stonemasons, the sculptors, the glaziers, the engineers, the astronomers, all of the people <clears throat> that were came together to create these uh, amazing cathedrals. We're only able to do that because of the surpluses of in European society. Because for every person that was working and involved in that phenomenal project, there was probably a 10 people behind them creating the support structure, the food, the clothing, the shelter, you see, so that they were free to create these architectural and artistic masterpieces. Now, what we see happening is that the, the, the phenomenon is going strong, and then in about the late 1200s, the climate starts cooling. Not not all at once, but kind of sporadically. Here and there, they notice that the winters are getting harsher. The summers are getting cooler. The growing season begins shrinking. By about 1310, 1314, there was a major shift now. And essentially, you can pinpoint right in there in that decade when the medieval warm period came to an end. And this was the beginning of the first phase of the Little Ice Age, as it's called. Now, up to this point, during the warm period, glaciers worldwide have been shrinking back, right? Shrinking back to where they're smaller then than they are now. And we know that because the glaciers that are shrinking back now are revealing the remains of forests that had been growing there during these warm periods, that there was that there was human communities uh, in these places, mountain passes that were completely buried under ice for hundreds of feet now have opened up and we see that they were trade routes that were being used prolifically, you know, for centuries, right? So now the cooling comes in and between 1310 and 1320, you have a series of disastrous agricultural uh, years, crops, rot in the field, same story, repeats, right? So now people start going hungry, people get malnourished, they're weakened, their immune systems get weak, and then what happens is that you have the opportunistic diseases, and around 13, I think it was around 1340, after a few decades of, of people not having enough to eat, we see lifespans already shrinking. We already see um, the, the, the population beginning to contract, but then when uh, in the early 1340s, the bubonic plague, also called the Black Plague, came in and again wiped out a third the population of Europe. Some places, whole villages were completely annihilated. Another place is only half. But you know, part of the problem was is that there was there was no labor force anymore. And we see that the end of this magnificent period of of medieval civilization that was producing these architectural masterpieces suddenly comes to an end. And it comes to an end because of a climate change that was probably initially brought on by a combination of two factors, endogenic, meaning internal from the planet itself, exogenic from outside. So you look, it looks like you had two things going on. One was a decline in solar activity. The other was an increase in volcanic activity. And it, and it turns out the two may actually be uh, correlated. The cooling earth may actually be a contributing factor to increased volcanism, which then, of course, introduces positive feedbacks. And so for the next couple of hundred years, you had brutal conditions, people struggling to survive. The glaciers begin to grow again. You had whole villages that were wiped out by the expanding glaciers. You had hundreds of farms that were lost to the encroaching mass of ice. People were going out there 
and performing rituals and having, you know, village prayers to try to stop the onset of the glaciers. You know, bishops and priests were going out there, you know, uh, entreating God, please stop the onset of these glaciers. But the glaciers kept coming. They grew and they grew until, Sam, they were the biggest they had been in ten or 11,000 years. Now, that's during... Now, the Little Ice Age was in two phases. There was a, a, a remedial period in the middle that interestingly coincides precisely with the, the Renaissance and the upsurge in artistic activity and, and so on. But then phase two kicked in, and you had a series of, again, you had a, a series of very brutal winters, uh, cool, wet summers. Uh, And this lasted right up until the early to mid-19th century. Now, it's important for people to bear this in mind because when you start looking at at, at graphs of of climate change and temperature change, bear in mind, here's a fact. During the Little Ice Age, planetary temperatures declined by a minimum, a minimum of a degree and a half, uh, maybe as much as two to three degrees, right? Now, since the mid-1800s, climate has warmed by about, a degree, no more than a degree and a half. Depends again on where you, you know, if you if you include the urban heat island, it's going to look higher. If you if you factor that in, it's maybe just more than a degree. We have not even recovered from the the the, the uh, decline in temperatures that were associated with the Little Ice Age. Now again, the glaciers, the biggest, the most massive the glaciers had been in ten thousand years. We know this because glaciers create moraine. They leave a very distinct. Uh, signature in the landscape and those moraines can be dated because when a glacier comes on it picks up vegetation trees all of this kind of stuff there's organic material in those moraines that can be dated so we know that those glaciers got as big as they had been in 10 or 11,000 years interestingly think about this when we start measuring and talking about glacier recession glaciers now compared to oh where they were in you know at the beginning of the industrial revolution well our our point at which we're starting our measurements were the largest, most massive, most swollen the glaciers had been in 10,000 years. Most people don't realize that, right? Or the, and they don't realize that when you go back and you look at these alternating periods of, of cool and warm climate, that, <clears throat> that the periods of warmth are invariably the times of human prosperity and advancement. And the times of cold, the exact opposite. Here's the other factor. The climate of this planet is constantly dynamic. It is not going to stop changing no matter what we do, no matter what the politicians in Washington yeah. do. The yeah. climate is not going to stop changing. It's either going to be getting cooler or it's going to be getting warmer. If it starts getting cooler like it has done before, we're, we're, we're going to have some serious issues to, to deal with. And also, when that little ice age conditions came back on, guess what happened with the sea ice from the Arctic Circle came down almost Iceland was almost completely abandoned because they were completely cut off from mainland Europe. The, the, the colony in Greenland that had been there for 400 years of the medieval warming period, it went extinct. You know, they waited too long and they did not adapt to the changing conditions. They should have, instead of farming, they should have gone to hunting. That's what they should have. They didn't do that. But then by the time they realized that they hadn't adapted, it was too late. They were locked in. They could not they could not get provisions from Europe, from Iceland, because of the sea ice that had had, had now encroached, see? So they went wow. extinct. 
Wow. It's probably worth mentioning that it's not just the uh, European, the European area with the cathedral building. As you mentioned a couple times, that there's parallels going on maybe in South America and in North America as well during that time. Oh yeah, the Anasa, <clears throat> excuse me, the Anasani, Anasazi culture or the Puebloan culture, whatever you want to call it, if the southwestern United States, uh, almost perfectly correlated. I mean, its rise was with the with the um, the increased warmth, which in the southwest meant increased rainfall. So that increased rainfall meant that they were farming where it's desert now, right? When the cold weather came on, there the demise of the Anasazi, and if you go down there, I don't know, Sam, if you've ever been down Four Corners area, San Juan Basin of New Mexico and seen some of the amazing stuff down there, the the, the Kivas and, you know, Chaco, you've heard of Chaco Canyon, right? Yeah, yes, yes. Have you, have you been there yet? No, I mean, I've been to Tijuana, Mexico City. That's about as far as I go. But after talking to you, I've been every day, I write, what are my life goals? And I just realized I need to put on there, travel the world. Well, you go on the road a lot, but we don't go out and actually go into Houston now, so that was fun. That was different. Yeah, but I need to, like, not go on work, meaning to do stand-up, and go to, like, see these amazing things around the world. I need to do that. Yeah, and start with, you know, start with what's right in our own backyard. I mean, you know, listen, we're going to be doing more tours, right, Graham? Yeah, you bet. I mean, we went to Chimney Rock and did all that in the Chaco Canyon. It was fantastic. All yeah. right. So, so Sam, get your ass out of the studio, man, and come out on a tour. <laughs> I'm with you, dude. They're Don't throw you out, me dude. with a good time. They're calling you I'll out. I'll definitely Let's go. go do that in a heartbeat. Uh, so there's so much to unpack in what you're talking about. Uh, you know, changing in environments in terms of like how humans lived in, in, in respect to the environment. How quickly do you think these changes happened? Like, are these small incremental, or was it like the Earth kind of the the temperature changed quickly for the Earth? Not like turn on light, turn light off, but more just like you know, moves pretty quick. That they 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 should have seen it coming, or did it just yeah, come yeah. out of nowhere? Well, when you again going up to the Greenland uh, example. Um, you know, the Inuit, the native peoples, they did adapt. They changed their hunting styles. They redesigned their, their boats. Um, they did a bunch of things that allowed them to adapt. Now, the the the, the colony, the Scandinavian colony that was there, uh, it was said, uh, oh, I, one of the historians of the Greenland colony said, well, they sent a, uh, oh, hell, what was it, a, a walrus uh, home and uh, to show them, like, what, hey, this is, the, this is some of the, uh, um, you know, some of the creatures we have here, or maybe it was a moose. I don't remember what it was. It was some impressive animal. And in, in return, they sent a Bishop. And so over (laughs) the next hundred years, they kind of got entrenched into this very conservative Christianity that looked down upon the heathens, the the native people that were the heathens. And um, I think that was part of their demise is because while the, the Inuit are busy adapting to the changing climate. And when I, you know, in this case, we're talking about, you know, decades, we're talking about a period lasting, you know, the, the full shift out of the medieval warm into the little ice age cold was about maybe a half a century, maybe 40 to 50 years. However, Within that, there were there were several more or less more or less what you could say catastrophic episodes where, um, you know, there might be a, an extreme 
freeze with with massive snowfall um again it wasn't uniform around the planet at the same time however we can see that the anasazi culture and the 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 medieval culture of, of europe in the middle ages pretty much rose together and then collapsed together at the same time and it ties right in with the changing climate. And here's something else that's interesting, Sam, when we talk about these, you know, here, here was a European culture building these magnificent Gothic cathedrals, and then you had these very impressive um, structures being built in the uh, southwestern desert, whose, whose center, whose hub was Chaco Canyon. Well, when you begin looking at those, as I have done and studied them from, a, from the standpoint of architectural design, what's interesting, here we can, we can talk about Gothic cathedrals, we can talk about um, Puebloan culture in the southwest, we can talk about the Incan culture, we can talk about the Mayan culture, we can talk about the Vedic culture in the Indo, uh, you know, the Indus River Valley, we can talk about the Sumerian culture, um, <clears throat> We can talk about the megalithic culture of ancient Europe, like in England. And, we, and, and when talking about those, we're looking at a spread of three to 5,000 years, geographically arrayed around the entire planet. Now, one of the things that I find just mind-boggling and, and beyond coincidence, maybe it's a coincidence. If it is a coincidence, we have to redefine what we mean by coincidence, but it's this. <laughs> Even though you look at what they were doing in Egypt, and obviously, if I showed you a picture of an Egyptian temple and a monumental earthwork of the Mississippi Valley, you wouldn't have any problem at all differentiating between them. If I showed you Egyptian architecture and I showed you Mayan temple architecture, you could, with a few glances, you know, be able to uh, differentiate. Same with any of the other structures that I would, would show you. We could go into uh, standing rings in, in England. We could go into the tumuli. Uh, we could go into, you know, some of the ancient earthwork structures uh, you know, in the Ohio River Valley. I mean, the list goes on. Okay, the outer forms, now get this, the outer forms are all very distinct, very unique unto the culture that created them. And yet, here's the remarkable thing. Once you begin to analyze the design, which included uh, a very distinct criteria, for example, no structure, particularly that had a sacred function, was just cited randomly. It was cited according to the geomantic properties of the site. In other words, they would send their shamans, their holy men, their seers, whoever these guys were in their particular society out, and they would map the energy of the landscape, and they would find that point that in the Greeks, you know, the Greeks basically were doing the same thing with their, their temples, right? The Greeks had the term omphalos, which meant the naval center. So, they would have a plot of land that was considered to be the sacred realm, the sacred precinct. Within that, they find the navel center, the omphalos, the belly button, if you will. And just like a fetus grows from that navel center by cellular accretion, they would find that navel center. They would establish a pole or a post in that center. And the idea was, and we can look at some images here in a minute, the whole process was symbolized through the, uh, the um, so, okay, okay, just a delivery man coming to, to a do my door. Do you okay, want to go grab it real quick? No, 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 it's fine. It's, it's fine. all good. He's, it's all good. To, all right. So anyways, um, <laughs> they put in the pole, right? The idea is, and, and they, they always had a very typical, universally a symbol for the energies moving through the landscape, and it was always symboled by a serpent or a dragon. Its counterpart was that there was a cosmic 
dimension to the serpent to the dragon and it was always associated with activity in the sky primarily asteroids bolides meteorites comets things like that okay but what they were trying to do and they did this in ancient china as well by the insertion of that pole whatever it might be into the ground they're fixing the dragon lines right that was the first step now once you had that pole you now began to make observations between that position on the surface of the earth and the cosmos. And the primary fundamental relationship was between earth and sun. So now what you do is you've got that pole in the ground, you draw a circle around it, which could be done by means of a knotted rope, a chain, a number of ways, right? You draw a circle around it, and by tracking the motion of the shadows, you set up a series of angular relationships that you, that's unique to that position on the planet. Those angular relationships can now be extended to the horizon, and what they were doing was creating, they used what was called a horizon calendar, and they all did this, a horizon calendar, so that the rising and the setting of the sun at the auspicious times of the year, solstices, equinoxes, the rising and setting of the moon during its 18.6-year cycle, the rising and setting of auspicious uh, stars and, and star groupings like the Pleiades or the dog star, all of those would be marked on the horizon at, their, at, the, at the critical lines would radiate out. So with that combination of lines, that, pres- that created the mapping for the ground plan of the layout of the temple, of the city, of the civilization. And here's the thing, Sam, that to me is almost miraculous. All over the ancient world, for 4,000 years, they were all working from the same template. So my question is, with that, because that's what I want to get into. So on this show, we've had people talk about something called Tataria and stuff like that, which uh, was an ancient civilization that was connected and it was all over the world. And this is part of what has been rewritten in our history. Is it possible that even though these civilizations were in different places, that there is a possible common thread to connect them, that they were more connected than maybe... Our, our information would allow us to understand at this moment? Like, are, is there technology that's beyond us to help understand that possibly, and I don't know if you can answer this, but that possibly they were more connected than we, we are led to believe? Oh, I think that absolutely. This is, this is powerful evidence that in some way they were more connected. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that the Puebloan culture of the Southwest was, you know, connected to the to the Gothic culture of, of medieval Europe, or that they were necessarily connected with, let's say, the Vedic culture of, of ancient India. What I am saying, though, is that somehow they all had access and were working from a common set of specifications, if you want to look at it that way. And again, I'll emphasize the outer forms that these, that these, uh, these, that, that these uh, structures and so on would take are very diverse and very distinct to each culture. But underlying them, you've got this this template. Where did that template come from? Now, to me, that template shows a very sophisticated working knowledge of geometry, astronomy, geology, um, far in advance of what we would have been giving these ancient peoples credit for even a few decades ago. Now, if you go into the mythology of many of these cultures, again, you find another common theme was that there were people, if you want to call them that, in some cases it's people, in others, it's gods, whatever is meant by gods, who 
like right here in my backyard, there's a there's a mountain called Blood Mountain that used to be sacred to the Cherokee Indians, right? I don't know if it's still there, but years and years ago when I used to hike up there, there was an old tattered sign at the base of the mountain talking about the Cherokee legend of that mountain, right? Blood Mountain, which immediately kind of invokes interesting pictures of, of grail mythology, holy grail mythology, um, things like that. Um, you know, the importance of blood in, in a lot of, uh, you said you studied occultism, so you know that in a lot of occult rituals, blood is was an important component. Um, you know, mystic Christianity, the blood of Christ plays a, a very important role, et cetera, et cetera. So this was Blood Mountain, right? At the base of that mountain, at the head of the trail, was an old tattered sign that recounted the legend of the Nunahai. Now, according to the Cherokee, the Nunahai were the people that the, the, the word translated essentially as the people who could travel anywhere. And it was these, the Nunahai, that came and essentially bequeathed to them this legacy of, you know, their creation myths and their origins and their prophecies and things like that, right? Well, if you go to the Celtic traditions, right, of ancient Ireland and Wales, you find the uh, a very similar, you know, you find a Tua De Danan, right? Interestingly, if you take the word apart, you know, just like the Anunnaki in the Sumerians, you know, the Anasazi, Oh, even the words, the, and in each case, it's the ancient ones. Now, the modern Navajo, because the Hopis and the Zunis tend to be uh, claim, uh, you know, uh, descendancy from the Anasazi, and there is a there is a uh, <clears throat> conflict and competition between the Navajo tribes and the, the Zuni and Hopi tribes. The Navajo have been basically their term for Anasazi means the ancient enemy, but. That gets down to territorial, territorial conflicts between the, the tribes in the Southwest. I don't necessarily think that that has any real bearing on on the idea that all of these cultures had this had this. The Egyptians, of course, uh, how did they learn about astronomy? How did they learn about mathematics? How did they learn about agriculture and farming and all of this? Um, well, according to their own mythology, Osiris and Isis and the various gods, uh, Tahut came and taught them this. So who were, you know, okay, now here's the other aspect. I, you know, I'm very much into mythology. So when I find out and I've studied for years the fact that cultures from all over the world have apocalyptic traditions, they have world destruction mythology, usually by, by flood, but often, as, often by fire. Those were the two ways that the earth was destroyed. In the Greek traditions, it was ekperousis, which destruction of the world by fire. At the root of that word is pyro, which, of course, means fire, ekperousis, uh, or cataclysmos, and cataclysmos was destruction of the world by water. Well, I can show you in, in you know, uh, hundreds, if not thousands of different examples that, yes, there have been repeated world-destroying floods that have engulfed this planet. Now, not in the oversimplified, you know, Christian model that there was this super supernatural rise of water to the highest peaks of the planet, and then it just as mysteriously disappeared. No, what we can, though, see is, for example, during the end of the last ice age, you had six million cubic miles of ocean water drawn out of the ocean bases and basins and locked onto the continents in the form of these great ice sheets, Holy right? Shit. The kinetic energy, the potential, let me say, the potential energy 
and 6 million cubic miles of water frozen onto the planetary surface, as much as two miles above the planetary surface, that potential energy is almost inconceivable. Now, if we go back to the end of the Ice Age, you asked me a question earlier about the, the, the rates and the speeds at which these changes can take place. The onset of the Younger Dryas took place in probably less than five years. The termination of the Younger Dryas, same thing. Maybe even as little as a year, one year, right? Now, one of the things that happened was some, in some unexplicable way, there was a massive energy dump into the global environment. Whatever the source of that energy dump, and it could have been solar, it could have been impacts from cosmic debris, possibly even a combination of both again. One of the results was you had massive melting of the great ice complex over not only over North America, but over Northwestern Europe. Massive, rapid, catastrophic melting. And it now appears that the, that the disappearance of that ice, and you have to picture, Sam, now we're talking about ice that's minimum, mass as massive as the, the ice that now mantles the south pole of the planet, put together with the ice sheet over Greenland, and you take those, you put them over North America, you still don't have as much ice Um in other words, there was more than double the amount of glacial ice on the planet. Wow. More than double. More than double. Now, here's the bizarre part. You go back, the late glacial maximum is, you know, seventeen to 20,000 years ago. Well, by 10,000 years ago, most of that ice is gone. Now, there's a serious problem here, and that is this. It requires heat energy to melt ice. And I can show you some very interesting research that was done in the early 70s when radiocarbon dating first started becoming available. You know, radiocarbon dating was invented in the late 40s. By the late 60s and early 70s, enough radiocarbon dating had, had accumulated that allowed researchers to go, wait a second. We were assuming that this ice mass over North America was 100 or 200,000 years old. But now we've got radiocarbon dating from plants that were growing almost under the center of the ice sheet 40,000 years ago, 35,000 years ago, right? This completely threw a wrench into the old models that we'd inherited from the 19th century about rates of change. So one of the things is with radiocarbon dating, the time span to get rid of the ice. It's one thing if you're saying we got 100 or 200,000 years to get rid of this mass of ice. But what happens when that shrinks to 10,000 years or 5,000 years? Because the problem is the energy requirements. And so there was a conference and several papers written in the early 70s uh, defining the energy paradox. And the energy paradox is where the hell did all that energy come from to accelerate this massive melting, rapid melting of the great ice sheets. And a couple of conferences were held and no conclusions were reached. So the whole thing was kind of put on the shelf and then forgotten about. It's, it's so crazy because the question gets, does it get, I mean, like maybe I'm just super paranoid, but like when the information comes out that traditional thought is incorrect and traditional thought helps the people uh, very powerful and rich at the top keep a certain narrative going, sometimes that stuff gets shelved, right? They don't want that out because they have a certain narrative going on right now that they, they want that because they're profiting off of that. And we see that right now with 
global warming, uh, climate change, you know, that, that this notion that humans are creating this insane, insane uh, in increase in temperature. And we have to do something about it. And the answer is the uh, taxing us on carbon emissions. And there's just things that Bill Gates wants to do that just, I go, what is, that doesn't make any sense. You want to black out the sun? Don't we need sun to produce <laughs> oxygen? Don't we need carbon dioxide to produce oxygen? I mean, what do, what is going on here? And it's just all this stuff that just, they just want to control us. And I don't even think it's about money because these people who are doing it have all the money. It's just this weird kind of power play that seems to be going on to make us think we're all super helpless. And, I, you know, all the stuff you're talking about just lets me know that there's so much more in the world that, like, we're so much more special and and, and so much more uh, intelligent than than they're letting us to believe. And I wonder if I got to ask you, Randall, do you see that we're entering a more, uh, a, a, a warmer time based on uh, what, what, what the earth is doing? And will that lead to a, another great time in civilization? Well, it could, I mean, it absolutely could. I mean, what we have basically seen over the last century to century half is, uh, is a amelioration of the extremely harsh conditions of the Little Ice Age. And this has been a good thing. I mean, you know, if we go back and we look at the projections of the vegetation, the planetary vegetation canopy from the 1970s, it was predicted that through deforestation primarily, um, what was going to happen was, you know, the predictions were that there was going to be a major diminishment in the, uh, the area of the planet covered by forests, for example. Well, you know, then come the 80s and the 90s, and we start putting uh, Earth-observing satellites in orbit, and we start keeping track of the actual number of hectares of, of, of forest. I'm using this as an example. Well, what has happened now is that we're realizing that, in fact, it, it went the opposite way. Rather than forest declining and forest growth declining, it's increased by 20 to 30%. Planet-wide, I mean, in other words, there's been a greening of the Earth in the last century. Um, bear in mind now, during the, the the late glacial maximum, the peak of the Ice Age, again, remember how he said when the oceans get cold, they suck in carbon dioxide? Carbon dioxide levels during the Little Ice Age got down below 200 parts per million. You know what happens when carbon dioxide gets below 200 parts per million? Photosynthesis starts shutting down. Now, if we had a long period of, like, at the very lowest point, 180 parts per million. Well, 180 parts per million, farming be starts becoming impossible. Oh, no. Yes, yes. Now, you look through most of Earth history, carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere have ranged between 1,000 and 7,000 parts per million. It's only with the onset of the so-called Pleistocene epoch 2.6 million years ago when the planet shifted from a long protracted period of global warmth into this oscillating thing that we're stuck in now, it seems like, because at least a dozen times throughout the last 2.6 million years of the Pleistocene, the planet has shifted between full glacial 
and interglacial ages such as we're in now. We still don't understand. We thought we did. Okay, it's changing orbital geometries, right? The tilt of the planet on its axis, the shape of the elliptical orbit, things like that. The problem is, Sam, is that those processes are very slow. It takes a long time, tens of thousands of years for those to play out. When we look at the Younger Dryas boundary of 12,900 years ago, we're seeing planetary shifts of 10 degrees centigrade, which is 18 degrees Fahrenheit, taking place in less than five years. What the hell is going on? See, we don't have an answer to that yet. But what we do realize now is that there have been things and events that have happened in this planet's history that have been a hell of a lot faster than anybody had even begun to imagine a few decades ago, a generation or two ago. When I came up, was getting educated, Earth change was described as one grain of sand, one drop of water at a time. And if you got millions and millions of years, you can accumulate enough change that you end up with the the land planetary landscape we have now which is the which is the culmination of these long slow interminably slow processes now it may be punctuated here and there by regional catastrophe such as what's behind me right here but that's only a regional event it's not a global event right no when we're looking at the younger driest we're talking about a global event and we're talking about that that younger driest event pretty much wiped out the great megafauna of of the planet you know, North America, think about this, Sam. North America during the throughout the Pleistocene had more megafaunal species than the Serengeti plain of Africa does now. There were four species of proboscideans in North America. Proboscideans are long noses, elephants, right? You had Columbian mammoth, imperial mammoth, you had the woolly mammoth, you had mastodons, right? They're all wiped out. Now you can argue about did they go all go all at once or was it extended over maybe a period of centuries or even a millennia or two. I lean towards that direction, but I don't believe it was, a, in a sense, a natural phenomenon. I don't buy the idea that, you know, uh, spear-wielding, Birkenstock-wearing nomadic hunters wiped out 12 million woolly mammoths, <laughs> especially when you, when you realize that the estimates of global population was between 5 and 10 million, you know, Men, That's women, crazy. and children. So, so were the toddlers out there with their spears taking down woolly <laughs> mammoths? I don't think so. But interestingly, they pretty much are all gone right at that younger, driest boundary. And that's something we should talk about because in 2007 there was a paper published about a possible extraterrestrial cause for the megafaunal mass extinction. Oh, snaps. Here we go. We're in it. It's what yeah. we're talking about. This is what we came for. Shit. What do you think <laughs> it is, dude? I'm totally down with this. Really? Yeah, what what well, did the paper it's, it's say? All, it's, yeah, it's all tied in with everything we've been talking about. Yep. So, okay. So somewhere around 25 or 30 years ago, after I'd been looking at these, these catastrophes, I concluded, you know what? It seems to me that the most likely explanation is has to be something extraterrestrial. You know, probably an impact. I began collecting material that I thought supported the notion that there was some kind of a impact or series of cosmic type impacts at the end of the last ice age. When I made my first, uh, what I would call scientific traverse of the, uh, of the flood landscapes of the Pacific Northwest, what I was looking for was evidence that there had been this <clears throat> sudden catastrophic meltdown. That was 1998, 1999. Uh, now that 98 expedition was to Eastern Washington and, and Western Montana, looking at the, 
the the evidence for the the, the flood landscapes there, the so-called Channel Scab lands, the Lake Missoula area of western Montana. The following year, I went to British Columbia and Alberta because I had concluded that the source of the floods was there, that something had caused a catastrophic meltdown of the great ice sheets over the Canadian Rockies. And by looking at the path waters of the meltwaters as they, as they extended out of the central Canadian Rockies, there's a plateau region up there that uh, the, the town of uh, St. George, uh, Prince George, Prince George is located, right? So I noticed that all of the waterways emanated radially from that a really chaotic zone. And I began to think, is that possibly an impact site? Did something strike the earth there? Well, since then, now this was, you know, 20 years ago. This was, I came to the, by studying maps, I had come to this conclusion in the early 90s. By 99, I'd made the, the first field traverse of that area. And what I found up there convinced me that I was on the right track. Now, 2007, here comes Richard Firestone's uh, paper and Douglas Kennett's and Alan West and those guys who are now the core of the Comet Research Group published a paper uh, no, probably in Geological Society of America Journal, I forget where, uh, 2007, proposing that the extinction event was caused by an extraterrestrial impact. Now, that ignited a firestorm of controversy, which has not abated to this day. However, however, what has happened is as the evidence has accrued, now they're, they're, they're proposing an outrageous hypothesis. You know, oh, and up to this point, you know what the dominant paradigm is, is that the human hunters were somehow responsible in a very ill-defined way, right? Um, somehow they did this. Somehow they were able to wipe out woolly mammoths over half the, 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 the land surface of the planet within a couple of thousand years, you, you know, using spears. They're on foot. Um, it just didn't make any sense. Didn't make any sense at all. Um, and still doesn't. The problem is, Sam, is that that, 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 paradigm started becoming uh, more mainstream, even though it was believed in the 60s, 50s, 60s, even the 70s, it was becoming discredited by the turn of the century. And the reason of that is because it just didn't make sense. Like I pointed out, I mean, if you've got more mammoths in the world than you actually do people, yeah, and of, yeah. you know, I mean, how, how and, and of those people, you know, how many of those are actually out there hunting mammoths? Well, well, it's known that they were they were fishing. They were they were hunting small game primarily. They were hunter. They were you know subsistence gathering. Um, so why would you go after the most dangerous animal, right? Well, the idea was becoming discredited until until you had the eco and environmental factions coming together around this idea of the sixth great mass extinction. In Earth history, there have been <clears throat> there have been five so-called great mass extinctions. What? Where three quarters to ninety-five percent of all species on Earth get wiped out. Right? Everybody knows about the dinosaur extinction, the KT extinction of sixty-six million years ago, which is now almost conclusively tied to at least one great impact, which has left this buried astrobleem in the northern Yucatan Peninsula. Right. Uh, there were probably multiple impacts clustered around that particular Cretaceous tertiary boundary, right? Um, wiped out the dinosaurs, uh, blanketed the, the whole planet with a with an iridium dust. 
that this is how they first found it was because they were looking at a KT outcrop in Italy and found this abundant, 100 times more abundant, excuse me, abundant iridium than you would normally find in the background, right? So they go, okay, here's a spike of iridium, 100 times more greater than we normally would find. Well, iridium is extraterrestrial in origin. So that was the first clue. Oh, right? damn. So, so and they argued back and forth, and eventually they found the smoking gun, which was this gigantic 150-mile-wide astrobleam under the limestone sedimentary uh, cap rock of the Yucatan Peninsula, and the damn thing is there. In fact, the whole ring of cenotes that were sacred to the Mayan culture marks the boundary of that that circular astrobleam that's buried under half a mile of limestone. That's a whole other interesting topic and conversation that we could get into because what the, the rituals that the Mayans were doing uh, associated with those cenotes, those sinkholes, were, were very, very suggestive. But that would probably be another conversation. All Whoa. right, man. You're always welcome back to that. Yeah, I'd love to do that. That's crazy, man. This whole thing is is nuts. Now, I know, I know you're, you're a science guy. Uh, how much of do you dwell into the, you know – extraterrestrial life uh you brought up anunnaki before we've had people come on talking about ancient civilizations the sumerian tablets stuff like that that talk about a great reset by the gods uh do you have any thoughts on any of that or is that just not into your what scientifically able to prove like you know land ley lines you know uh ley lines and all that stuff when I mentioned earlier the idea about geomantic mapping, the insertion of the pole, yes. Typically, the insertion of the pole would be where two lines crossed or you had a conjunction of multiple lines. And there's a geological component to that, the work of uh, Paul Devereaux, which I interviewed with him oh years, probably 10 years ago. Um, that's what he was researching and discovered that just as there's an astronomical dimension to the sighting and orientation of these ancient uh, sacred complexes there's also a geological component as well and they seem to be associated with fracture lines and fault lines and so on which is interesting because if you have a fracture in the in the crust of the earth this is where water you know the hydrosphere the subterranean hydrosphere where water moves you know there's a, an enormous amount of water in the crust and it moves through the crust well it moves through the, the zones of least resistance, which are typically the fault lines and the fractures in the earth. The only different fracture is simply a crack, a, sta- a static crack, whereas a fault line, they're moving with respect to each other. That's the main difference. So now, Sam, you know the difference between a fracture and a fault line, because you will be tested on this at some point. Bum, 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 bum. <laughs> but water moving underground sets up interesting energy property it has effects in the geomagnetic field it has piezoelectric effects uh these things can actually now be mapped you know there's a very long hallowed tradition of 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 water witching or dousing which you probably have heard of i have seen dousers in in action um that convinced me there's something to it um i have a very interesting story uh, years ago one of my first contract projects, I was building a boat barn here outside of Atlanta up on the Chattahoochee River, and it was going to be a pole barn. 
And so I had gotten a hold of somewhere, I don't even remember, I'd gotten a hold of 15 telephone poles that had perhaps been, I don't know, decommissioned or something. I, I don't remember where I got them. So I had 15 telephone poles, so I came up with a design where I'm going to have three rows of five each, you know, vertically set into the ground, and then I'll hang the structure. I'll run purlins around, and then I'll I'll build my structure, basically build a pole barn, right? So I had a flat surface there, um, and I drove a stake. I, I went out there with my, my little transit, my builder's level, and I laid out the each spot where I wanted to have one of these poles set. So back then, you, uh, the the local telephone company that we called Ma Bell had a had a, a, a truck. They would come out with a with an uh, auger on it, and for fifteen dollars, they would auger a hole and they would set your pole for you in the hole. So I called Ma Bell, told him I want to come out on such and such a day and and set these poles for me. And in the meantime, then I drove a stake where I wanted each of the poles to be placed. So the day comes, they arrive, they come in their official, you know, mob bell truck with the big auger drill on the back. Um, you know, their, uh, uh, you know, their, their, their boom that they were able to set the lift and set the poles with the truck pulls up to the site. And first guy that gets out, this is tall. I mean, he had to have been six, five, six, six skinny guy wearing an old crumpled hat overalls gets out of the truck He's carrying something that looks like a violin case. <laughs> Thinking, who's who's this guy? You know, and then the other two guys get out wearing their Ma Bell uniforms, right? Guy comes down, stops, says hello, whatever, you know, in a real strong southern accent. Opens his violin case and he takes out his dousing rods. And they were nothing more than the old fashioned car antennas with the little ball on the end, you know, the telescoping kind. Yeah. So what he had done was he had, you know, cut off about six inches where he could hold it in his hand of the sleeve. And then he had taken the, the outer part and he had bent it 90 degrees. So he had a pair of those. So here's what he does. Now, I'm like, God, what was I then? Maybe 23, 24 years old. I'm kind of stupid and gullible. And I'm like, my first thought is, are these guys pulling some fast, fast one on me? Or, you know, I, I had no idea. I mean, I had heard of water witching, but I never really knew what it was or had certainly never seen anybody in action. So he's holding the they're, – they're just kind of waving kind of, you know, back and forth, kind of in a relaxed fashion. And, and you know, he's walking, and he goes over each of the stakes I had driven in the ground. And as he goes over, you know, he would step across, and then he would yell up to the two guys at the truck, clear – so he went over all 15 of my stakes, and every one of them was clear. He then starts walking, which would have been to the west, and there was the driveway coming into the property was to the west side of the, of the, the, the building site there. And I knew that somewhere in that vicinity, the water main came into the property. Okay, so he's walking across the driveway. Now, to my knowledge, this guy's never been there before. He's walking across the driveway, and all of a sudden, and I'm watching. I'm watching very close, like, what is, what's going on here? What's this guy doing? He steps across a, this zone, and then the, 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 the antenna that are just kind of, you know, oscillating idly back and forth, 
all of a sudden they cross and they do this. They bend almost Whoa. as if somebody was holding the ends of them and putting them under tension. They bent like that. And he goes, I forget what he said, something like water main or so, something to that effect. He steps across. And as he steps across, they go from being under tension, bent like a back to doing this. Then what he does is he walks in a zigzag fashion. And each time he crossed the water main, you could see those antenna whipping into an X and bending like that. So he was able to trace out that water main coming in. And I'm standing there with my mouth open. Like what in the, what am I seeing here? And he goes, son, come here, son. Come here. You want to try this? (laughs) I'm like, who me? Sure. I'll give it a shot. What the hell? He gives him to me. And I'm like totally like in this zone of like totally not knowing what to expect. I, I look back now and just, you know, basically dumb innocence. I stepped across where that water main was and it was like I got a shock. And it was so surprising to me because it literally felt like somebody grabbed the ends of these antenna. And I was able to trace that water main out just like you did now. I've tried dousing multiple times since then and have never gotten a response anywhere close to that first time. I don't know why that is, but I've since then I've given lectures to dousing groups and I've known others. I met a Marine at one point who said in Vietnam they had dousers that could actually find uh, buried landmines. I don't know if that's true, but that's what he told me, and I had no reason to doubt him. But anyways, you can go in and you can look at all the, you know, the 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 you know the, the skeptics, you know, um, are going to say, well, you know, that's been all disproven and all of that. Well, where where has it been disproven? You know, we can actually yeah. see that there is a long tradition of people who have the, the 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 requisite sensitivity being able to actually detect not only water underground but different kinds of metals and ores and rock types you know in the middle ages and so on they were using dousing techniques to find hidden ores and metals the the, the mining operation employed dousers you know which you could call geomancers if you will now, I don't think if this was completely bogus, Ma Bell would be coming out using a, a, a dowser to tell him where it was safe to drill if there wasn't some sort of credibility or validity to the whole process. So having studied into it quite a bit since then, yeah, I think that we can say, yeah, there is, there is an energy field that suffuses this planet. And it's not just random. It's connected not only with the, the sub uh, surface the subterranean geological structure it's also influenced by what's going on out there so that when you have um you know particular times of the year when the sun or think about this sam we all know that the moon causes tides right and you know you can see places where the tides will sometimes come up four or five or six feet it's totally in sync with the moon and the the orbit of the moon around the planet well, think about this. I just said in the hydrosphere, there's a, an enormous amount of water. Do you think that that water in those subterranean realms is not also being affected by tidal forces? Of course it is, right? And I think that those tidal forces, those, this, this ebbing and this pulsing throughout the Earth's crust of, of, the, of the hydrosphere, 
was actually being mapped by ancient people. And they were able to correlate the changes in the hydrosphere below our feet with the changes in the cosmic environment above our heads. And that right there, to me, is, would be the, the fruitful place to look for what their ancient science may have evolved out of that correlation of these two realms, the terrestrial and the extraterrestrial. And how they may be able to have predicted catastrophes, like with building Gobekli Tepe or the pyramids or whatever. Yeah, and, and, and predicting catastrophes was certainly part of it because, you know, look, where we went, Graham was talking about this place, Chimney Rock. This is southern Colorado. It's two great pinnacle rocks. Um, and there is an observatory built on a ridge um, that sites between those two rocks. And by means of that, those two rocks... And the ridge behind you, right to your to your east, you could map the move the movements of the sun and the moon with tremendous precision. So, on certain days, the sun would shine between those two rocks, and on the ridge behind you in the distance, they had built a series of towers, and this was their calendar. So, a shaft of sunlight would come between these two pinnacle rocks, Damn. and on auspicious days, that, that shaft of sunlight would illuminate a tower. It must have been a. Well, you were there, right, Graham? You, 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 you yeah, yeah. concur yeah. with me that that must have been a phenomenal thing to witness. Or how to build it. I mean, I don't even know how they would build it. That's yeah, the whole gonna, thing is like the mysterious, how mysterious it is that they could build all this stuff, and we just. When we look back, we think people are so simple, and it's just like... <laughs> the Aztecs had the same thing. Uh, I think a snake goes down the temple when yeah. the sun comes yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that's... Yeah. How do you do that? Unless you have to have... You have to be exact on yeah, the day. Precision, exact. for precision. sure. It's such... Are, it's so mysterious. Yeah, are you talking about the Castillo at uh, Chichen Itza, where yeah. when the sun comes up? Yeah, that's a, actually occurs on the equinoxes. Exactly. Yeah, you can see the sun yeah. go down like a snake goes down the temple one by one as the sun goes down it's unbelievable actually as the sun comes up the but, snake descends there we, so yeah. it's, it's it's if you can see my hands it's yeah this. it's unbelievable it's unbelievable and so i want to uh end it on this it's like what do you th i mean like what do you think our planet is what do you what do you think this <laughs> realm is i mean like i believe in realms you know <laughs> that this is a very special place that we're special beings and, you know, we're, we're part of the universe. What's your thoughts on that, Ren? Is there a spiritual side to this? Can you find spirituality and hope in all of this stuff? Well, Sam, I am the eternal optimist. And yes, I am. I have a very spiritual orientation to life. Um, I do believe there's more to all of this existence than meets the eye. In fact, I kind of look at the whole planetary realm and the the, the cosmic realm is almost being like a great living symbol for some something that we can't even hardly begin to comprehend. Yes. I also think there's a correlation between the patterns, the external patterns of the cosmos and the internal patterns of our consciousness. And I think that what one of the things that the ancient people were doing was by by taking it, it's the, it's the alchemical dictum, as above, so below. And what they were trying to do was to create an infrastructure to, to redesign the surface of the earth to maximize the harmony between those two realms. Yes. And to the extent that they were successive in, successful in that, 
civilization prospered. Uh, you know, there were not global catastrophes. Uh, I think that the global catastrophes and the collapse of civilizations are part of the same process, just on different relative scales, right? And just as a species can become extinct because the, the world changes, civilizations can become extinct. And again, the point I was trying to make was the key there is adaptability, being able to have predictability, which which we can have. Because, for example, if you think about uh, the, the, the impact of, of Shoemaker-Levy 9 in July of 1994 uh, into Jupiter, well, that impact, those 21 impacts were predicted a year earlier, right? Because we were able to discover that there was this comet that had flown so close to Jupiter that Jupiter's powerful gravity field ripped at the single nucleus apart and formed 21 sub-nuclei. Those 21 nuclei spread out and created the chain of pearls that now came and went around the sun. And by tracking the, the, the velocity of those objects moving, by developing the the geometry of its elliptical orbit, they were able to predict that second week of July 1994, those 21 pieces were going to be crossing Jupiter's orbit at the exact time that Jupiter was there, and they were able to predict those impacts. Okay, I think that one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons why ancient peoples all over the world were so obsessively in, uh, interested in what was going on in the sky is this, and we'll have to, this is another conversation, but the idea that there are, I would say, like cosmic pulses, where right now, We've built this civilization, Western civilization, in this cosmically quiet interval. The sun has been relatively stable. The influx of cosmic debris into the inner solar system has been reduced since the end of the last ice age. But it's inevitably going to come around again because these are part of the natural periodicities. And I think ancient peoples were very tuned into this, and they knew that there were times when the uh, probabilities of a catastrophe could increase orders of magnitude above the normal background. I, I always liken it to this. You're driving down a lone country road. You can, you've can you got some tunes on. You might be hitting on a duber. You don't have to worry too much about oncoming traffic because there's not much. You're out there all alone. Beautiful day. Looking at the trees, the sun, the clouds. You're driving along. But now you come up to an intersection. When you're going through that intersection, you got to be more alert because there might be oncoming traffic. Now, it could depend on how, is this a major highway? Is it, a, is it an interstate, whatever? Is it a major highway or just a little county road, right? Well, depending on the type of highway you're crossing and what time of day. Well, is it a major highway and at certain times of day, the, the flux of traffic is going to be greater than at other times of day? Well, the model here is this. We are essentially, our solar system exists in a network of cosmic highways, if you will. And there are times when the susceptibility to these things, these incursions of things that originate out there become enhanced by orders of magnitude. Yeah. We need to be identifying those times. And, and this is, again, another whole conversation we could have, Sam, about 
how the ancients did it and how we might do it using modern technology. I will say this. I, I, you, have you heard of Matt Lohmeyer, the, the lieutenant colonel who was a member of Space Force that no. just got canned because he wrote a book called Irresistible Revolutions where he was talking about the the infection of, of the United States military by this woke, uh, you know, critical race theory and all yeah, of this yeah, yeah. Stuff, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, all of this stuff that's being being uh, exaggerated to basically deflect our attention from the real stuff. Well, he wrote a book basically being critical of that and saying the military needs to stick to its, its mission, right. And not get distracted into all of this politics. Right. Right. Well, he got immediately canned. I hope he's, I think he's going to be dropping in to visit Joe, uh, Joe Rogan uh, in the near future. I recently contacted Joe introduced um, Matt Lohmeyer to him. Well, anyways, Prior to the ap- academic, <clears throat> academic, the epidemic, before that hit, uh, Matt Lohmeyer was stationed in Alabama. This was, and he was one of the higher ups within the the newly created Space Force. Right? He contacted me, said he'd been watching my videos and stuff, and he wanted to meet me and talk about planetary defense. So he came up, drove from Alabama up to uh, Atlanta. We. We met, we had a great meeting. We, I was at the time I was building this restaurant. And so we wasn't finished yet. We came to, we had a great meeting and he said, would you be willing to do this? If I could assemble uh, 30 or 40 of the base commanders together, would you come and do a presentation on cosmic impacts in planetary defense? And I said, absolutely. I would, you better believe I would, I would jump at the chance. So we had it planned. It was going to happen uh, a year ago. Uh, last month, of course, then COVID hit. So all of that got put on hold. So we were circling back. We were going to do it again this fall, right? Well, now he's been canned, right? So here's Space Force, which to me was like, hey, geez, isn't that, if we're talking about planetary defense, we're talking about understanding that in our future, there may be times when there's this massively enhanced flux of shit from out there that could dramatically change what the, 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 the game down here. Well, we need a whole, and this is something I've been advocating for 20 years now is that we need to be thinking about that. Right. Well, we'll see what happens now. I hope there's a, a movement to get him reinstated, but uh, I would say uh, stay, stay tuned to what Joe Rogan is doing. Cause Joe will probably have him on. He was on Tucker Carlson uh, last week. But, you know, five minutes. Yeah. With Joe, he'll be able to sit down. In fact, you maybe should get him on. Hey, Sam. make it happen. Let's do make it. it happen. We'll yeah, always do yeah. it, dude. We're open-minded. Do you believe in uh, aliens, Randall? Uh, let me say this. Uh, yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> it's complicated. But I'll, I'll, I'll say this, and I know we got to wrap this up. Um, you know, I think in some cases we're looking at experimental aircraft and and. You know, the Air Force is perfectly happy to let people believe it's aliens. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, we're looking at phenomena connected with, and this gets back to what I mentioned about Paul Devereaux's work, that, um, you know, these there can actually be luminosities, audio phenomena and stuff uh, created uh, tangibly uh, that is associated with what's going on down below, right? Um, And again, that could be enhanced by, you know, I made the the, the analogy of, of, of lunar tides, Right. If you have an eclipse, I'll, think about this. This was one last thing. The connect between now you have the sun and the moon actually um, 
So you have this cumulative effect. So it's not just the moon anymore. It's now the sun and the moon. I think that's one reason why eclipses were so important to ancient peoples was because during eclipses, things happened. Maybe even including things like what's behind me here. Subject for another conversation, right? But uh, as far as the alien thing, I think it's... uh, I have I have an opinion about it, but I don't think it's what people think it is. I think it's something surprisingly different, and this could be another future show. And I'm always at this point a little uncomfortable about getting into this publicly, because if I'm right, uh, it means that there's a major cat let out of the bag, and I'm not sure what the blowback of that's going to be. Okay. Um, I'm all about that. Final last question. When was the last time you did shrooms, Randall? When was the last time you ate mushrooms to just trip balls and talk to the universe? Well, I've done shrooms twice, and neither time did I do enough to really have a full-blown experience. Now, if I go back to the early 70s, I've got peyote (laughs) and and LSD (laughs) were the two. Um, I had some pretty remarkable experiences on peyote. <laughs> wow. So my, my, my mushroom experiences is something I'm looking forward to. And I think uh, it should be coming around. I just, you know, I've been, uh, you know, engrossed in building my business of being a normal, normal guy, quote <laughs> yeah. unquote. Yeah. Um, and doing you know, your own show now too. You got your own yeah. podcast. I wanted to, I wanted to mention that like you're doing cosmography now with the awesome uh, brothers of the serpent and Brad young, right? Absolutely. Your own show. Yeah. yeah. So we should talk about that too. I don't think he was doing that the last time he was on your show. So no, this has been going a year and a half now. Yeah, um, right. You know, we did mention about the other situation that I had to extract myself from because it just got too exceedingly toxic. And so a lot of my material is, is there on the Sacred Geometry International site. It's being sold, uh, and it's going on about close to three years now that I have received any remuneration from the sales of my material. Uh, The administrator of the website has been served with two cease and desist letters, which he ignores. Um, He's going behind my back, insulting friends, colleagues, uh, you know, actually insulting me privately but he can't do it publicly because he's living off of the proceeds of the sales of my work so i just think i want people to know that look if you want to purchase something from there know that i'm not receiving any of that money it's all going to this basically he turned the site into uh, a conspiratorial website but basically not things that i for example i never bought into the QAnon thing i think that that was a psyop um, at worst, at best, it was a hoax. Um, but he turned the site, for example, into a major proponent of QAnon. So now I'm seeing, as a, after a few months of that, I'm seeing all over the internet, oh, Randall Carlson, yeah, he does some pretty cool work, but he's a Q-tard. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, wait, time out, that ain't me. But the way it was all presented, you wouldn't know the difference. Um, people think when they're buying from the site that that... I'm receiving it because look for, for years I promoted the site. I went on probably 50 different podcasts. I probably promoted it on your website, on your podcast, Sam. Yeah. Um, but somewhere along the, the way, he, the administrator decided that he was just going to lay claim to it and forget about our agreement of a, you know, even split of revenue. And so it's gotten really toxic and it's just, it's sad and it's disappointing to me that it's come to that. And I have been, um, I've been procrastinating and doing anything about it just because I keep 
hoping that at some point he's going to have an epiphany and go, wait a second, this is not cool what I'm doing. That hasn't happened. So I'm now in the mode of wanting to let people know that I'm not part of that. Um, the insults online that he's doing, I'm not part of that. The deleting of people who come onto the, the website asking what's going on here. Is this Randall's website? Uh, they get deleted. They get banned from the social media. I'm not part of any of that. Um, so I've had to go and do my own thing. And uh, this situation has not resolved itself yet, but it's going to very soon. Well, you know, I believe in abundance versus scarcity. And when you Me F too. people out of money, you're practicing scarcity. Uh, you know, it's like you're the talent. You're the you're the creator. It's unbelievable that people would not recognize that and uh, support that. And at the end of the day, you know, the universe has a way of working everything out. And I, I do honestly believe that. And it may not be today or tomorrow, but it will come. And Me too. when you go off on your own, you will create your own brand and your own stuff and all that. And nobody will go there anymore because they know that you're over here doing your thing. And if they love you and support your work, they're going to follow you over there and support you. So in the long run, I believe everything works out. Sometimes bad things mm -hmm. happen to good people and sometimes good things happen to bad people. But I usually see that the universe works it all off. Uh, works it all out guys thank you so much for coming on i hope you guys had a great time because i know i did it was you riveting bet. shit i could listen hey, to you guys all day one what? more thing sam can i mention quickly uh randall talked about that uh trip that we had at the scablands in washington yeah there's another there's another one coming up september 20th to 26th and there's a few tickets left if you go to contactedthecabin.com, there's a tab there, Scablands with Randall Carlson. And Brandon Powell is going to be joining us, too, for some breath work. And it's like uh, Soap Lake, Washington for five or six days going in and out of all the stuff that Randall's showing with the uh, with the Scablands in Washington. So you get a, a week with Randall hanging out, all the awesomeness. And his website is randallcarlson.com, and his podcast is Cosmographia. Yeah, randallcarlson.com will get you to anywhere yeah. you need to go. And I also... Uh, Sam wants you to get get hip to what's going on with the how-to project, which if you go to randallcarlson.com, there'll be links to the how-to project because I think part of what the goal there is to kick YouTube's ass. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm all about that action, and uh, we will – I, I will. I'll join you in your battle, my friend. So we're going to, again, randallcarlson.com. Go check that out. Go check out Grimerica. I love you both very much. Thank you very much, Randall, for coming on. Thank you, Graham, for coming on. Please check out Thanks. the uh, Grimerica podcast. They're doing amazing things out there, especially in chaos. That is Canada right now. So uh, anytime I can support the brothers, I will do that. Guys, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I, I love you all very much. I love you, Swarm. And uh, we got another great show show tomorrow too we got jimmy door coming on so it's a it's a week of of just crushers thank you guys so much and uh have a great day we go deep homeboy Aaron, open your mind drink from the fountain of knowledge there's lizard people everywhere that's some interdimensional shit wake up Aaron. This is only the beginning. Dude, you just blew my mind. Tim foil hack, Tim foil hack, Tim foil hack.